Hey, everybody, and welcome to Celebrating the Brand Ambassador, where we get down and dirty and reveal the secrets of some of the most outstanding career brand ambassadors, innovators, and brand owners in the cocktail industry. I'm your host, Elaine Duff, and if you like what you hear, please subscribe. Now let's get right into it and meet the personalities behind the brands you love. So, hi, everybody. Welcome to the 15th episode of Celebrating the Brand Ambassador. I'm very excited to have with me Todd Richman and Jesse Esses. And I'm not going to introduce them. I'm going to have them introduce themselves. I suppose them have very interesting careers. So Todd, I'm going to start with you. So talk about, I know you're not a brand ambassador at the moment, but you have been. So talk about it like your past and now you're current. If you wouldn't mind. So first of all, thank you for this opportunity. It's really exciting to be here. It's been ages since I've seen you, Elaine. I know, it's Jesse. so nice to catch up. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And Jesse, I've been a huge fan of what your family's been doing for a long time. It really shaped during my formative years in brand work what quality meant and integrity as far as products go. So it's fantastic to be able to catch up with you and have this conversation. Short and sweet. <laughs> Short and sweet version is I worked uh, for Frederick Wildman as a wine supplier and then transitioned to handling chartreuse. After that, I worked on cocktail development and education for Sidney Frank and their entire portfolio, leading with Jägermeister as well as Gege Kansake, American Harvest Organic Spirit, Michael oh, Collins Irish Whiskey, yeah, wow. and uh, Baron Jaeger. So worked with a lot of those other brands as well, but Jägermeister was the focus. Then I had the opportunity to work for Diageo for about five years, starting with the Masters of Whiskey and then into the reserve team. After that, I worked for a boutique wine and spirits distributor called Progress Wine Group. And now I'm currently the director of sales for Overproof, which is a technology company focused on helping create solutions for different aspects of the beverage industry, both suppliers and the hospitality side. Now, I want to hear later, later on, I'm going to ask a question, what those solutions are. So <laughs> Absolutely. It's, like, it's like a big, a big topic of solutions. I feel like there needs to be so many solutions out there. Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> so Jesse, tell us a little bit about yourself before, before you became the global brand ambassador, what you did and, and what you do now. You know, I just said it. <laughs> thanks, thanks, thanks for having having me on as well. And, and Todd, thanks for the kind words. So I started off in, in bars, working in bars for about seven years in London, and then kind of joined the family business, which we'll talk more about, Tequila Ocho, as the Global Brand Ambassador. Although that's my title, I do a little bit of everything. So I'm the international marketing manager. So I, all of our markets outside of North America, I do the the marketing, and I'm one half of the international sales team for Tequila Ocho. So along with my colleague, Salva, I look after about 50 different markets. So <laughs> Small job. Just a small job. <laughs> also, the, probably the most fun part. I mean, it's all fun, but, but I absolutely love a new product development. So that's something I'm very much involved with. And, and I'm sure we'll, we'll speak about that more as well. Way written a few books and kind of write for publications, trade publications regularly, and involved with kind of the drinks community by the Drinks Trust more recently, and and just different projects that I've got going on. But yeah, primarily global brand ambassador for Tequila Ocho. Man, I have to stop here. I didn't know you wrote any books. What did you write? I wrote a couple of cocktail books that are more for consumers than than trade. So really. Uh, 
Yeah. Congratulations. Awesome. <laughs> Any that I can find somewhere? Are they on Amazon? Yeah, they're on they're on everything. Amazon, all over the place. So uh, from Dram to Manhattan is the one about whiskey cocktails, and then Tequila Beyond Sunrise about tequila and mezcal cocktails, and possibly a rum book in the works. So that that's something fun that I've got going on. Well, I will say, as the part-time global brand ambassador for Kapali Rum, which is a delicious rum from Belize that only uses three ingredients, just sugar cane, use some water. <laughs> That's my plug for the brand. Please let me have some cocktails. And if you want to have some product for some rum, please let me know, because it is fantastic. I actually. definitely will. So, and thanks. Thank you. <laughs> I, I have to give them a plug. They are, you know, as the brand ambassador for them, and as a part-time, we don't get to do a lot at the moment in time. So this is this is my one outlet that I actually get to talk about the brand. All right. So you guys have both worked on brands or categories that have not always been popular, always be your target mar- market. Meaning like Todd, you worked on, as you said, you worked on a tire portfolio. But when I met you, you were really making Jägermeister relevant to the cocktail industry, which was interesting because it was only like the shot, the thing you found in college bars and the shot machine. And then Jesse, you know, working, obviously tequila is relevant, but it keeps growing. You know, it wasn't always, it wasn't the thing everybody looked to. And especially in Europe, it is such a, it's still a spirit that people still have some hesitation about jumping into. It's not their first thing they turn to. So I really want to talk to you, uh, what are some of the activations? And Todd, I know we talked about something really cool you did to make Jägermeister something that people looked upon more seriously to get them under brand. And then I want to talk to you, Jesse, about like what you guys have done to kind of get the people in Europe to embrace tequila, you know, in a different way. So Todd, for you, what did you All do? Right. It, was, it was really interesting to go from a brand like chartreuse which an herbal liquor an herbal liqueur with a ton of complexity that was in the early 2008 2009 2010 handful of cocktail aficionados in the trade were leaning into that brand and then to swing over to jägermeister you had almost the antithesis which was this general market that really really loved Meister, they had embraced it, but with the cocktail, sort of the craft cocktail set, they had really sort of pushed it away on reputation only. So I was lucky enough to work with Tad Carducci on a seminar called Blinded by the Dark, which was a blind tasting of Amaro's, Digestifs, and Herbal Liqueurs. And it allowed us to sort of stand on the shoulders of other brands. Be- where the interesting thing was that the trade began to embrace the brand because when they tasted it blind and looked at it for what it was, an herbal liqueur with well-selected ingredients, thoughtfully made, take away all the other reputations about it, they really began to embrace it. And credit goes to Tad Carducci for being willing to embrace Jägermeister and at the same time, big thanks to Jägermeister for being like, you know what? This could be a really interesting angle for us to position the brand in. So it was really cool to be a part of that. And also, anytime you can use a bitter or herbal liqueur that is somewhat sweet in nature, there's an opportunity with a slight variation of the other ingredients to feature Jägermeister in there. So that was no, really, I, I really thought that was, I thought that was really, I mean, because it's true. Like, we all thought of Jägermeister as the shop brand. And I also think the other thing was really interesting was that 
Todd at the moment was working with Domain Select. You were working with Sydney, Sydney Frank, and the two of you partnered up. So it's like two competing companies kind of doing something together, which is also unique within the industry, you know, at that time. And so for, for you, is it more like because people tasted it blind, they were like, oh, that's that's really good. And then it's like they just thought of it in a new way. They like they were able to kind of separate like what Jägermeister's reputation was. Did you have any, like, what would you say your big success? One was how did, you know, you and Todd working together, sorry, you and Todd, you and Tad working together as a company, was there any hesitation from either company? Nope. That you're doing uh, more... not, a, yeah. not a drop. There was no real issue because it was all trade focused and it allowed us to work in a different way than we had worked in the past. What was the most exciting thing was when we did the seminar at Portland Cocktail Week, we also managed to throw a party where there were ice cold, neat servings of Jägermeister. You could get just a local pint of beer, some pizza, and we had a really fun DJ. So working on a brand like Jägermeister, it allowed us to have this dichotomy, which maintained the true brand ethos, which is ice cold shot, herbal liqueur, meant for celebratory occasions, but alongside that, hey, listen, they're sourcing their 56 herbs, roots, spices, flowers, fruits from all over the world. And when you're putting that kind of thought and care into a product, then that should be celebrated as well by the people who make their own orgeat, get into long conversations, waxing poetic about, no, you need to use this type of neutral grain spirit to make your tinctures and and fights <laughs> yeah. about overproof rum. You know, that that demographic really started to lean into the potential of the brand. Now, did that mean that all these crafty cocktail bars were going to be sudden epicenters to drive volume? No. But it meant if I was at Swift around the corner from from where we took bar five day, if I bought a round of Guinness and shots of Jägermeister, nobody turned their nose at it right. because they understood what it was. Eventually, it was a very long process, but at the same time, it was a, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, and, and which is crazy. I mean, Jesse, do you ever work with other brands, or is it just within the Camarena family? No, I've only worked with specifically with Tequila Ocho rather than other tequila brands. But I think I'm wondering. No, I'm saying like, would you ever, as just to enhance the category, maybe embrace like in Europe doing something like a collaborative with multiple tequila? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. We've done that. Uh, you know, to us, it's it's really about, you know, your question about how do you really work with a brand where that category has a stigma to it, or or, or there's difficulties around selling that category. And we still do that today, even in a market like the UK, which is quite mature, the most mature tequila in Europe, but still at least 10, 10 years behind the US, let's say. But we still work with other brands because our whole goal is to elevate the category of tequila and especially 100% agave tequila. And within that, we all benefit, you know, all the brands benefit. So we, we work with basically all brands. We're, we're all friends. We say we're, we're friends, not brands. The is there any activations that you guys have done that you really are proud of? That you're like, all right, this this is definitely making a difference for tequila. Well, kind of similar to what Todd said, and I think that blind tastings are just so helpful. So we've done a series of blind tastings across all agave spirits, including you know Bacanora, Ricea, even Soto, 
I've usually throw in kind of some wild cards, South African agave spirits, Indian agave spirits, Venezuelan. And it just, it just really, our goal is to change people's perceptions about tequila, about agave spirits. And I think one of the best ways to do that is to get beyond the label. Like Todd said, there's, you say the word Jaeger and all kinds of people will have all these big preconceptions about what that means to them. Whereas you take that away and you just have the liquid, it speaks for itself. And, and I think people are very often surprised and shocked by their discoveries, myself included, in, in blind tastings. I think it's a great exercise. No, it is. I mean, because it's, it's funny. Most brand ambassadors are just hoping to get people to love their brand within a category, but to get people to actually embrace a category, not just your brand, but just the category as a whole that's a whole nother challenge. It's like, you've got two jobs, you know, it's like educating people about tequila, educating people about then tequila Ocho and how yours stands within the category. So it does make your job a little more challenging and, but it probably makes your role a little more interesting because it's not just about selling your brand. You're like changing perspectives for an entire industry, which is, which is kind of cool. It's a lot of fun, I would imagine, but challenging. <laughs> And, you know, my dad is very much, obviously, is the founder of Tequila Ocho, but he is also the official tequila category ambassador from Mexico to the EU, to the European Union. So that's very much what he's been doing for 45 years now is promoting tequila category in, in Europe long before Ocho was around. So that's something close to our heart that we, that we want the whole category to, to prosper and do well, not just our own brand. Now, his story about when he was telling me how you opened Cafe Pacifico, Todd, I don't know if you're familiar with Thomas Estes, Jesse's dad, but you are, but I got to interview him last week or two weeks ago, and we were chatting, and the fact that he opened up Cafe Pacifico in Amsterdam, a tequila bar in the 1970, like 1978, like when people were like, I have no idea what really tequila is, and I don't really drink it, but he went full on, you know, and brought it in, started educating them, and then opened tequila bars, you know, five or six of them, right, around around the globe. 18 of them, yeah, 18 of them. 18? 18, yeah. okay. I didn't realize it was 18. I thought he had one in each country. I didn't realize how big it was. No, in London at one point we had six six venues, I think. So, yeah, we, we, we he, he made his way around Europe and Australia and different places. Wow, that, that that I didn't know. So, all right. So, Jesse, Tequila Ocho has such a compelling story, right? You have, and also you have two different packaging styles. And I, anybody tuning in, and we're starting to get a few people like, can you tell us why you have two different bottles? And do you have them there so they can see what the story is oh yeah, behind Tequila Ocho? Todd is in this one or not. This is actually a limited wow. edition red bottle. But but this is this is what, I'm trying to get this facing the right way. Yeah, I can see it. Good. This is the this is the European packaging and, and Asian packaging. It's 500 milliliters. It's normally a clear bottle that's screen printed, so the the eight on there would be screen printed in this writing and things. Obviously, anyone tuning in from Europe, this is the U.S. packaging. So we're talking really worlds apart here between the two. And we started with the 500 mil, you know, kind of what we call the red bottle packaging. That was our initial design that we did ourselves. And it, it was very much for our own bars at that time. You know, we were our own first customer and we wanted something ergonomic for the speed rail and easy to use and something that didn't have a label that would get kind of stained or ripped or, or, or wet and difficult to clean. And the best thing with these bottles is you can just take the back of a bar knife and kind of scrape off the screen printing fairly easily. 
and you've got cheater bottles. So I love going to bars around the world and I, I just can so point out the, on the back bar. Yeah. So it's for us as kind of being an on trade background, it makes sense. And then the US, we 500 mils back then was was an illegal size. Obviously, I know it's legal now. It's legal now. Like, yeah, it is amazing. Yeah, it's legal nice. now. 500 mils. Yeah, yeah. It's a big deal. It's a really big deal for so many brands. But anyway, go ahead. Sorry. So yeah, but obviously then you know 13 years ago it was not permitted, and our US importer at the time who we were speaking to wanted something that was more kind of premium and in, in image and kind of top shelf, if you can call it that. So we really kind of took everything back to the drawing board clearly and started from scratch and took inspiration from wine bottles, cognac, armagnac, to really drive home that concept of terroir. It's very inherent in, in French wines or spirits and wanted to tie that in with, with tequila. So this is the result. I love both of them. You know, I couldn't choose a favorite, but very, very different. Same exact liquid. No, I, I think it's it, it's so cool. I I I don't know if I told you yesterday. I think I did that. We one of my first. I met Felipe Cam, Camarena when I was there. I was visiting Don Julio, and I asked if I could go to a couple of distilleries. And and I went there, and I was really hungover, and I was really late. And I met Felipe, and I had my own bus. Like Diageo gave me to Diageo gave me a little bus. So I had this giant bus, and it was just me and the driver, right? So I pull up there, and there's like this couple. And they're like waiting for me. And then like Felipe and he can see him hungover and he looks at his son. He's like, go get her a beer. And, and then I look up, I'm like, do you happen to have any Advil? And I was like, I will give us the bus all day if you could give me some Advil. <laughs> so we literally, he's like, you're mine. I don't know where else you were doing today, but you're mine for the whole day. And so we all went on the bus and he took us to La Rojena when it was still being built, correct? Because that's the newest, or no, he went to, to La Rojena and was already built. That's where El Tesoro is also made, correct? So yeah, La Alteña has been there since 1937. I think what you're thinking of is El Pandillo, which is Felipe's distillery, which now produces Or yes. and Pasote and Teralta. Really cool, cool distillery. Yeah, he did. He took us. Yeah, he, so he took us to both. And when he took us to his new distillery, he was like showing us. And I'll never forget. He, and he was talking about, he was telling us about Tequila Ocho as well. And like it was a single estate and single agaves and that like nobody else is doing this. But I also remember being in his new distillery. It's still being built. And it's all about, you know, recycling water. And a bull, a giant bull walked into the distillery. I'm not <laughs> fucking kidding you. Like all of a sudden I look up and there's a bull. He just wandered in the front doors. He was like, hello. Like, I was like, there's a bull in your distillery. He's like, oh, yeah, he's in the field down the way. Most bizarre. But then he took me to the family home and where his dad's the dad family home. And he told me this crazy story about El Tesoro, uh, about he's like, did you ever see the green El Tesoro? And I'm like, did you ever hear this story, Jesse? Yeah. It's like, I was like, a nail or something that was in the barrel and an iron ore like dropped into That's one of the cool. fermentation tanks. Like, so one of the guys, cause they stir it by hand and one of the guys dropped it and didn't tell anybody. So the, <laughs> so yeah, so it tainted the, the product and it all arrived in America and it had this slight green color. Right. So they're calling, you know, him and he's like, does it taste okay? And they're like, yeah, but I <laughs> think there might be something wrong with it. And they finally found out like what had happened. Like the guy never told anybody. <laughs> so I had some of the green El Tesoro while I was there. Um, it tastes good. I mean, I it, it, it was fine. 
It, it was totally yeah. fun. All right. So I go off on a tangent here. All right. So Todd, sorry. Um, you guys have both done a great job of building your own personal brands. You know, Todd, people know you from all over the place. And I definitely know, like, when you got hired by, um, you know, Diageo, they, they found you. You know, you and I had conversations, like, should I take this job or not? But tell us, you know, things you might have done to build up your personal brand. Like, because I think it's a important thing. And I know, Jesse, you have a, a whole, you've done an entire thing about this. And I have as well. To get people to seek you out, what do you think are some great best practices, Todd, so that people, you know, find you? <laughs> I guess it's just uh, if you're going to commit to something, do it. Be nice uh, when giving a presentation, being sure to be mindful of Hi, Diana. all the questions. What's up, Diana? <laughs> uh, you know, be being willing to learn from other people in a job and a field like the brand ambassador, where you're considered the face of the brand, you got to take a certain amount of the ego out of it because that's when things can go off the rails and get dicey really quickly. Um, so I always tried to remember that I was part of a team and that ultimately my job had to lead to sales. It had to lead to sales of the product. So that's making sure I checked all the boxes when I was in a specific market. Was I working with the distributor and building up that relationship? Was I working within our network of regional and market managers and not just coming in, doing my own thing, thinking that, oh, I'll just do a guest bartending shift. I'll buy, I'll do a bunch of spends and then everything's fine. Mission accomplished. No, it's, it's willing to get in there and get in the parts of the job that may not seem so glamorous, like going to out of the way retail stores, going to, markets that never get the attention from a brand mm -hmm. ambassador, but there's so much value in there because those visits really, they really are impactful. And, and it's just like anything else, it's relationships and yeah. just I think finding, you finding your place in the team. Yeah. Touching on something there about building your network within, within the marketing teams, because you know, as a brand ambassador, I think the more you network within the organization, people get to know you, the bigger your value becomes. And then people think you on a, on a whole nother scale. So like when you went into a market, would you, you know, meeting the market managers, you know, uh, knowing the brand teams, is that something you would always make a priority to make sure everybody knew who you were? Absolutely. I mean, I was pretty OCD about my emails back in the day. I still am to a certain extent, but I've relaxed a little bit. Making sure that the agenda was set, making sure that there was room for me to do recaps and also get a run in or hit the gym or something of that nature. Smart. But spending time, spending time with the market managers, spending time with the local sales teams, getting to know every level of the distributor chain, just so that they knew I was out there and I was active and was in a way that was working towards the common goal, which is ultimately sales. And getting yeah. more people to use the brand, whether they're pulling it off the shelf of a retailer, using it at a cocktail, new points of distribution. I think that the work more than anything else, in addition to treating everybody with compassion and respect, is sort of the best way to build a brand. Now, it's not always easy because even within the own company, they're like, oh, who's this person coming in with their bar kit and asking me to go pick up 
you know, fresh squeezed tangerine juice for an event. Uh, there, there definitely are people from sort of the generation before that are just state managers, market managers. And they're just like, you know what? I just want you here to sell. I care about depletions. And it's finding that intersection where both of us could do our job, do it well with the vision of marketing and try to get the W for everyone. No, I think it's, when to touch on that, one of the things you, you brought about was that fact that like, you've also built a reputation that brand ambassadors are more than just a credit card. They, you built a brand, you built your own personal brand. It's like, I not only gonna do this cool interaction and engagement, I don't think I'm above you. I'm part of the team and building a personal brand. Like I can help you sell. I can help move cases because sometimes they wouldn't find value in the brand ambassador and to build that personal brand as well as a, you developing a brand for a brand ambassador. Like this role is important and this is what I can do for you. I think is also crucial and not being a dick is pretty much my number one motto. People ask me all the time, yeah. like, you know, what I, was saying? I was like, don't be a dick. At the end of the day, be reliable, show the fuck up, and don't be a dick. If you yep. can do those three things, you're halfway to your goal. Now, they're like, well, that should just be a baseline. I'm like, yeah, but you would be amazed how many people can't do that. <laughs> yeah, and, and don't get me wrong. There there have been hiccups, and there have been times where I wish I could have said or done things a little bit differently. Of but, course, we all did. But much like they say in jujitsu, if you don't win – it's not a loss. It's a learning experience. So there's yeah. that. You never got fired. So there, there you go. So they, they were willing to forgive you mostly because <laughs> I was very close a few times myself. And Jesse, I know yeah. this is a big thing for you. You, you, but you can different type. Like, and it's something I believe in. It's like, how do you build your brand? What was, sorry, let me just go into, what was your philosophy about building your brand? Cause I know you did like a, a presentation about this. Yeah, and I, well, I really like Todd's approach because it's it's also just kind of you know half of it I would say was just kind of being a being how to be a decent human being, which we could all use more of that these days as well. And so yeah, it's just you know it, it really is like you said, it's the face of a brand, and you want someone who who really you know if I look at the best brand ambassadors I know, in fact, most of the brand ambassadors I know, they're people that everyone really wants to be around for all those reasons, because they're just genuinely good people and, and fun and, and, and all of those things and humble and kind. But yeah, my approach is a bit more systematic and a bit more practical. So there, there is an article that I wrote just recently in the last couple of months for the drinks community, the, the drinks trust, which is called in praise of self-promotion, how to get noticed. And I outline about 14 different points. I mean, I, I could have gone further, but I had to cap it. So I, I have 14 <laughs> different points that I would recommend, not just for brand brand ambassadors who or people who want to become brand ambassadors, but just anyone who wants to kind of move up in their career and, and, and kind of, you know, get noticed a bit more within our field. Can you give us a few, like what you think your highlights? Not all yeah, 14. Sure. I mean, it's, it's really the same way you think of a business. It really applies to, to us as people, right? To brand Jesse Estes or brand Elaine, brand Todd. It's to me, it's, it's, it's very similar in that sense. So, you know, conducting SWATs and, you know, identifying our strengths and weaknesses and opportunities and threats as, as individuals or as brands, looking at USPs, you know, what is it that really sets me apart from anyone else in my field? You know, there's usually going to be at least one or two things for every, every single person. If we really That's not easy to find. That is, it, is, it is not, not easy, easy to find. It's it not easy not to identify yourself. It's, it's a very worthwhile exercise, but not easy. 
And then, you know, things like just have being ready, having headshots ready, because there's going to come that time where things do start picking up, where people are going to ask for a buyer, or they're going to ask for a headshot, just kind of being prepared for that kind of upcoming success. And, yeah. uh, you know, Elaine asked me this question yesterday, and I just thought that I was at the supermarket a few days ago. And it just, I, I saw a brand, I can't remember what it was, whatever, it was just some consumer good. But I knew nothing about this brand, but I had seen it enough times with that brand recognition. There was a familiarity to me already with this brand that really kind of tied into, for some reason, my, my mind went to politics that, you know, especially with smaller elections, local elections, like in the US, all this money they pay for those little things in people's front yards and, and advertisements on TV. It's really just to drive home that brand recognition. So to me, it's like, get your name out there, you know, get involved with whatever it is, forums or, or groups on Facebook, try to write, you know, try to become, I guess, blogs are kind of out of fashion now, but, you know, start an Instagram page, a TikTok, whatever's the most relevant medium right now, but put your name out there because, you know, if that, that CV comes across someone's desk, they're going to say, oh, I don't know Jesse Estes, but I know that name. I've seen it on Facebook. I've seen it at Tales of the Cocktail. I've seen it at BCB, wherever. And I think that that brand recognition, that name recognition goes a long way. So uh, yeah, if, yeah, if you're interested, please please read the article. But yeah, I think there's there's a lot to say about this. And I really like Todd's approach, which is more uh, more human, I'd say. Mine's a bit more, more uh, practical. Well, there, there's a balance of two, right? So it's like there is that human approach of when you're on the actual job and you're putting yourself out there. And then there's like the other, the more tactical. Yours is a more tactical. You're like, man, like for me, like, and it was so funny when I was on with Ian Burrell, you know, I said to him, I said, I'm going to say something to you and it's going to be really shocking. And he said, I said, nobody's ever asked me to do a seminar ever or to be on a panel. And he's like, are you shitting me? I was like, never. I've never been asked to be on anyone's panel in my entire 20 year career on any trade show. I said, every, he goes, but you're always at trade show. I said, every trade show I've created my own seminar, made my own panel and put it out there in the world. I said, even Diageo never asked me to put together a seminar ever. Every, I got Diageo. I took Diageo two tails. They'd never been there before. And I brought them in and created seminars, created the, the brand ambassador Thursday happy hour thing. Like I was like, Sometimes you just have to make that extra effort. Like you, you know, if somebody's not asking you to do something and a, a common theme on this show has been do the job you want before you get the job, you know? So like, and I just wanted to put myself out there. I wanted people to know who I was. I wanted to speak at seminars because I had some things I was really interested in talking about, but yeah. I was like, and, and I wanted to build a personal, I wanted to build a brand because I knew I wasn't going to work at Diageo forever. Uh, and I didn't work behind a famous bar. So I was like, I need to do something. So people have some way of like, who's this Elaine Duff person? You know, like, you know, why, you know, why should I listen to her? So you do sometimes you have to do extra work and it takes a lot of effort. Like, you know, so I think that's a great article. I would, can you send it to me later? Or like, yeah, yeah, same here. Yeah. Definitely. So I can post it. I'll post it up on, on the page. I think people would love to love to see it. Okay. So for you both, I'm looking at, so you built your personal brands. We talked about that. Some of your beliefs around this, blah, blah, blah. Todd, so we talked about yesterday about personal growth because you've made a lot of career changes based on you were looking for that new challenge or some new roles, it's something else you wanted to learn. So talk about some of the roles you had and how you got to where you are now like and why you made that change, especially going from brand ambassador into distributor. 
The uh, so working on brands and working on different brands. The goal was never to just sort of take a little bit and run. It was more the positions happened organically and the opportunities happened organically. And that was really, really exciting. I took each job when I worked for Chartreuse. It was just sort of luck one day because I was really focusing on the wines and Chartreuse was just sort of this feather in the cap of an incredible portfolio like Frederick Wildman. So, you know, once I was able to get an account list and realize that the people that were embracing this brand were people that I not could only learn from, or sorry, I could only learn a ton from, it was also this opportunity to say, hey, listen, you have these incredible, thoughtful, brilliant people embracing this brand. How do we spread the word even more? So that sort of led into me sort of forging my own path within the confines of what the company wanted. And then with Sydney Frank, the opportunity to work more focusing on learning cocktails and learning about you know, trade engagement and working within media and working under public relations was an incredible opportunity. And then, so that that taught me a lot. And, you know, Sydney Frank, as did every employer, really embraced in the education and personal growth within my career. They sent me to bar five day. They gave me a lot of opportunities to pitch ideas. And if they made sense, great. And if they didn't make sense, they, they told me, why do you think this works? Here's why we think it doesn't work. Run it back again, and let's see if we can find that middle ground. And That's that teaches you a lot as well. Yeah, really? that teaches you, more importantly, a sense of humility, because at the end of the day, it's never about one person. It's about the brands. And that was something that was a big part of the personal growth. And then transitioning from Sydney Frank to to Diageo was was wild because I'd never worked for a company of that size ever. And the amount of layers of learning the real, you get into the guts of it and you learn things like media training and compliance. And when you're working for an agency, there are these, you know, protocols with working with the client. And that teaches you not only how to find your path and stay in that path for all the right reasons, but also how to sort of navigate what can help everyone on the team. And that was really cool, especially working with the Masters of Whiskey and the Reserve Portfolio, which are some of the best brand ambassadors, some of the most educated brand ambassadors. I mean, you sit down and have a conversation with a, someone like Doug Craigle or Ewan Morgan or any of them, and the men and women on that team were and are still some of the brightest minds I've ever had the chance to work with. So just, you get to be a sponge and that's really cool. And then. Yeah. I was going to stop you there. I'm going to stop you a yeah. second. I was going to say, I was always really jealous of the whiskey people because Jesse, you got to realize within the, our company working for Diageo and working within the agency, the whiskey ambassadors have been around for a long time. They got to go to Scotland. They got to work in the distilleries. They, they got the best education ever of all everybody right so like everybody else were like scraping by like you know like here here's tanqueray 
that's it. Like, just like, this is gin or this is vodka. I mean, eventually we started expanding. Like I used to beg, borrow and steal to go to distilleries. I was like, oh, is a press trip going? I'll use my teeny. I'll come too. Like, I mean, yeah. I want to see the distillery. Like, yeah. So I was really, they did, I still think it's one of the best education programs for brand ambassadors on knowledge and what they allow them to do was incredible. So you're really lucky to get into that. Yeah, it was incredible. And then also we had an amazing, like, even a little local team where I got to work with people like Diana and Robert Pallone and, you know, Rebecca Quinones and just an amazing, incredible group. And it's just all these opportunities to contribute and learn and collaborate while having to go on your own path. And it teaches you a lot of uh, independence within confines. And that requires a certain amount of discipline. And then uh, I decided to get into sales on the distributor side, and that was really the one aspect that I had not done in this industry. And I think, personally, I believe everybody should work in a restaurant for at least a year of their life and work in some kind of sales shop because you really learn a lot about yourself when you're in sales. Like what? And well, you get you get real good at learning to handle rejection. You get real good at learning to put out multiple fires all at the same time, be they inventory issues, working on pricing, you know, trying to help a customer who, you know, may or may not have understood that a hard cutoff time means any orders after that time can't be accommodated the next day. They don't care. They've got a restaurant to run. They've got a retailer who needs special orders. So it's you you bite down on that mouthpiece and get after it. You get it done because that's what needs to get done. And when I decided to transition from that, I, I got an opportunity to work for Overproof. And I wanted to develop my leadership skills and do it in service of a company that has been working to create technology platforms to help the food and beverage industry, to help out liquor brands, to help out retailers. And that's been really exciting because even though my title is director of sales, you know, I've got to be out there in the field. I'm, I'm an extension of the sales team and, and another member of the sales team in addition to leadership roles, just because I'm in a leadership role it means you have to be able to do everyone on the sales team's job as well as they do and then roll it on up as well as meet the objectives and the requests of the leadership and the C-suite team that I report to. And that's, it's been a wild ride and I don't regret a single decision of it, except maybe <laughs> some of those 6 a.m. flights after late events the night before. Those, uh, those I think we take all a toll. Those can definitely take a toll. And I, one quick question on the leadership, learning about leadership, which is, you know, you either learn it on the job and on the fly, or, you know, maybe you took some leadership courses or you had a mentor. Did anybody, you know, help you along the way? Did you have a mentor? Was it take courses? You know, learning management it's, is interesting. Yeah, it's, it's funny you say that. It's kind of a hybrid all three. You know, I looked up to the leaders that I've always had, and they always took the time to help me because, well, I ask a lot of questions. I ask a lot of questions because it's important. And then I look to people like authors like Brene Brown, who talk about leadership and vulnerability, and Ryan Holiday and his work on the Stoics, and then a personal sort of mentor of mine, kind of a hero, if this age possible, is Chaka Willink, who 
if you follow him on Instagram, is it's just pictures of his watch, him getting up to work out at 4.30 in the morning and his idea of leadership and extreme ownership. And those are books that I definitely recommend because he took all of his applications from the military and helped translate them to where people who work in sales, marketing, you know, development of any kind can take these strategies of extreme ownership, you know, decentralized command, managing up and down the chain of command within a company of various size and use it to help everyone achieve their goals. So I kind of just... I, I want all that, I that list. I, I want that oh. list, and we'll, we'll put we'll, we'll put it up. And, and and you said the Stoic philosophy, yeah, as well. Yep, Ryan Holiday, the Stoics. It's brilliant. Oh, it's, you know, it is brilliant. I read one every day. Philip actually recommended it to me, and you can read one every day. They're really short. If it's the same one, it's like really short passages of like different Stoic philosophies, and then translation. Jesse, it's it's very good. Oh yeah, yeah. I'll check it out. I'm going to add that to my my list after this. yeah Todd, todd's gonna send this over the list I'm, I'm gonna put it up there which i think is amazing because the leadership thing is is the next is definitely the next role for so many people it's getting up to that chain of command uh, and i think i commend you todd you, you've gone so so far since i i have known you role now working for a startup i i just commend myself so i work for myself it's just me commanding me and it's it's you know some days it's tough it's, it's not always it's not always easy. All right, so Jesse, I really want to because Tequila Ocho is a family-owned brand, right? It's founded by your father, Thomas Estes. He's one of the most famous tequila people in the world. It's created by the Camarena family, which is one of the most respected tequila families in the world. And I wanted to make sure I read this correctly because I wrote my own question, but it was a good one. Uh, I'm assuming the heritage has a little bit of pluses and minuses for you because it must be a little bit of pressure, right, to work for something like that. So I wanted to talk about some of the cool things, because obviously working for the brand and being family-owned, you probably get to do things that other people might not be able to do if they're just a brand ambassador. So from like product development and things of that nature, I actually found one of his products the other day and I was very excited. I don't have it here with me, but it was the new CAS program that I didn't realize Jesse created. So talk about that. Like what are the positives? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's, there's a lot of positives and, and just you know, the, the the relationship aspect with my dad of getting to work together. And of course, this is something that, you know, we, we I think we were both aware in the in the very early days that that could go either way. But I think it was overwhelmingly a positive experience for both of us to get to, you know, have the father-son relationship and, and also kind of work together in a professional setting. So for me, it's been a, a really great experience. And, you know, I, I don't think it's it's never been about, you know, trying to, quote unquote, fill my father's proverbial shoes. It's, it's very much and I don't want to speak for the Camarena family, but I but I think that they feel this way, too, that, you know, Carlos Camarena as a, as a fifth generation master distiller has heaps of heritage and tradition and deep roots in the tequila world. But he's also an innovator. He's a pioneer. He's a kind of visionary, for lack of a better word, within that category. And I think that he sees his next generation. So his daughter, Fanny and, and Mary Fair and Carla, his three daughters, all in the family family business now, very much in the kind of next wave. And, and I don't think, again, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I don't think he would want them to do things exactly the way he did them. I think that's the whole, that's the beauty of this new generation coming in that they change things. And, you know, mm-hmm. Todd having worked with these brands with extreme heritage, like Chartreuse, 
you know, if Chartreuse never changed in 400 plus years, I don't mean the recipe. I just mean the, the, the essence of the brand itself. You know, I think the opposite of change is, is death, really, at the end of the day. So, you know, that's that's important that every new generation brings their own touch. So, yeah, I'm very much glad to be adding some of my own influence onto the brand. And this partnership that we started that you mentioned with Ismael Ferrand and Alexandre Gabriel and his team started three or four years ago, probably. And we did a barrel swap. So they sent us some different rum barrels and, and cognac barrels. And we sent them some very special barrels formerly containing tequila ocho. And we've done a, a range of cask finishes that came out a couple of years ago. And then just recently, what, what Elaine found in the, in the Hamptons, I think it was, which is super rare, this release, we did about 300 cases of each SKU, is called the Barrel Select. And these were created by Alexandre Gabriel. They're the first blends that we've ever done with Tequila Ocho, because that's not really part of our philosophy. But again, it's we like experimenting, we like innovating, we like trying new things and crazy. I'm going back there just to get the other two because I didn't realize it was like 300 cases of wow. the marketplace. And I like saw them, I sent them a picture and I bought one. It was like aged in a rum barrel and I have it, it's an Añejo. And I'm like, wow, and there's one in a cognac, right? What's the other one? Cognac, rum and... And then there's a blend of different rums, I think Fiji and Panama and different cognac barrels. So yeah. Yeah, I don't, nice. even, I don't even know if the liquor store knew. And it was a very cool liquor store, but I don't even know if they know how special it is. So, no, probably like, not, yeah. Yeah, I was like, because Tequila Ocho was in a lot of the liquor. I was in a lot of liquor stores that, that weekend working on a on a different project. And I was like, oh, Tequila Ocho is really out here. People really love tequila out here. And, and then I saw those. I'm like, well, these are new. So, yeah, very excited going back. Oh, that's um, cool. And I, I never get tired of that, Elaine. I never, I, I'll be out with, especially with, with non-industry friends or non-industry friends and I'll see Ocho on the back bar and it just, I walk into the bar and it gets me every time. It's a bar I've never been to before. And, and they're saying, come on, you know, Ocho's in thousands of bars, tens of thousands of bars around the world, but it just gets me every time. So walking into the liquor store and seeing that is the same, same experience. Now, I must feel that pride. I know Philip feels that way when we go into a bar and, and somebody has, you know, his Geneva on the back bar and he's like, wow, look at that. He's like, it never gets old whenever you see that. Um, so, yeah, that must be really magical. And also knowing that also having some expression that you've made yourself inspired to be made is, is kind of really cool. Yeah, get, I mean, that's that's a really exhilarating, unique experience for me that, you know, take that from a purely like conceptual or preconceptual state to to being yeah like you sending me that photo to being in the in the in the shelves of the store that you happen to be in it's, it's just kind of surreal it's a, it's a great experience no that's that is so cool todd we did and this is a completely different subject but i did think it was really interesting because we started talking yesterday and we were talking about, you know, different things about being a brand ambassador. And the one thing that every brand ambassador will complain about is reporting and expenses, right? So that's like probably the most <laughs> mundane part of your job, right? That's extremely in, important, but still the, the most painful, right? So people have shared best practices about taking, you know, pictures of your receipts and, and all and using yeah. your tool and marketing things. And, but we were talking about expense management and the fact that there's also a, uh, you know, in this new generation, <coughs> excuse me, health and wellness. And sometimes having an, a credit card that's not your own can lead to a little bit of debauchery and maybe making poor decisions 
that also is probably bad for other people. So Todd, yeah. you talked about this, right? Like just about making more conscious decisions of like how you're using your expenses, your your credit card. Give me an example. Absolutely. You know, <laughs> and and to the generation of brand ambassadors out there now that never had to like cut and tape and paste receipts for me to do a co-op. You know what? The way I look at it is this. If the worst if the worst part of my job is having to do a small collage because I got to spend someone else's money, then I have no business ever complaining about anything ever in any aspect. In I fact, miss mine so I, much. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a funny thing. Yeah, expense reporting, complaining about spending someone else's money is like, I don't know. I very spoiled. It's sort of like it's yeah, you're pretty spoiled and. Yeah, I have friends who would describe that another way, but I don't know if there's family-oriented content on this, so I'm not going to use the expletives that friends have used with me about it. Anyway, I digress. No, uh, it's very interesting that the most they tell you is, here's your card, spend the money like it's your own, and oh yeah, good luck. And... I think there should be a certain amount of responsibility about that. And I should be like, listen, is is it a viable time to buy a round of drinks at two in the morning for an entire bar because you're celebrating something? Or looking looking on it in retrospect, maybe it wasn't. Maybe I didn't need that. Maybe they didn't need that. Maybe I hadn't read the room when I bought those rounds of shots or beers or drinks or whatever. And maybe it was a better time to use that earlier in the evening. Sure, maybe there was less of the grandstanding and sort of the smoke show that comes along with being able to stand on the bar top at Aaron Rose and buy everyone around a shots in there at two in the morning when probably there was a handful of people who didn't need that, who didn't want that, but got caught up in the tsunami, as it were, of this... <laughs> this hype and this frenetic energy. And maybe it's like, maybe you could have used that money a little bit differently because getting the text the next day, and I'm sure it's happened to all of us was saying, Oh, that last one really put me over the edge. Like you never want to hear that because that's sort of counter. It's the counter to what we're trying to do with the brand. And, and in that situation, it becomes more about, the ego of the brand ambassador versus the actual what's best for the brand itself. And it took me a little while to learn that because as much fun it is to have a good time and, you know, you're given sort of this unbelievable literal wealth that you get to walk around with in your wallet and take pictures of your receipt and put it in a recap. There's, there's definitely a, a lesson in there. And that lesson is just, Take that minute to pause and think about really try to have a plan how you're going to use your company's money. Because when brand ambassadors come back and they come back into the field and they're they're active again and, you know, we're sort of through this pandemic, everybody's going to be watching their bottom line a lot more than they were in the past and really in the heyday of things in that sort of 2000, you know, pretty much up until 2020 was sort of the high time 
for <laughs> brand ambassadors. You know, you were just riding this incredible wave that you got to do this for a living. And if I were leading a team of brand ambassadors, that's what I would tell them. I would say, listen, if you don't think someone's going to be watching your every move, then they will. They are. And they will be watching every dollar because all the reporting is done through your phone now. So technology, while it can be your ally for convenience sake, you bet your ass that it could also cause you yeah. cause someone to have a lot to explain. Yeah. So start building that discipline now. Start and it'll prevent you from maybe making the choices that some of us older folks made in the past. <laughs> and, and got away with, but we wouldn't get away with it now. I got away with it enough. Enough, right? <laughs> yeah, I think those are wise words. Any, anything, Jesse, you have any thoughts about that? I mean, I don't know how your company works. You kind of work for your... Yeah, my experience was very different. You know, we we shared hotel rooms and things like that, and flew EasyJet until until fairly recently. And then, you know, I I, I have to me the, the very big blessing that you know more recent travel, I was able to get hotels with gyms and things, which we spoke about the importance of kind of keeping keeping up that that side of personal wellness. But yeah, we we we've always been. I mean, we built Ocho with with no funding essentially, so we we were always on a tight budget and very aware of that. But I think, you know, the, the, the reporting is really important because it does just bring a little bit more awareness. Like Todd was saying, it just, otherwise it's too easy. It's, it's almost like monopoly money. You know, if you just forget that this is, that this is real money and that, you know, if you have to do it, whatever monthly, or you have to really look at what you've spent, hopefully, you know, certainly for me, it does. And hopefully for others, it just makes it a bit more real and actually yeah, you look at that and say, oh, did I did I need, you know, to spend that that one line or those 10 lines in this spreadsheet? You know, I'm not I'm not sure. So I think I think it's I think it's a positive thing to have to report it. And I agree with you guys both completely that post COVID, this is going to look very different for most organizations, I think. Yeah, no, accountability is a big thing. You got to give it. And, and especially for those who are, you know, might be younger and, and, and don't have their own brand where it's their own money you're spending out there in the, in the world and you're spending somebody else. It's like being accountable for where you're spending, what you're doing with it and somebody kind of checking in. I remember when I was managing brand ambassadors before I actually became one, I remember like, you know, calling me, I'd look through their receipts and they'd be like, I'd call them out on shit. I'm like, yeah, why, why are there like, 16 other brands on here and like one of yours and you bought an entire round and I get that happens once in a while and I was like it's fine but it should not be the norm you know just calling people I'm like you need to be more and I think as a manager you do need to let your brand ambassadors know you are looking sometimes so because if nobody's paying attention then of course people suddenly they're like nobody seems to give a shit so why should I I do think you have to let them know that you're care that you do care and that somebody is paying attention and you know, coming up with a plan, like what's acceptable and what's not. Like, I get it. Sometimes you're going to be sitting in a bar. They don't carry your brand. You're just trying to build a relationship. You're going to have to buy something. That's totally fine. But if you don't give them guidelines, I've had brand ambassadors sweating to me. Like, I didn't know what to do. I was sitting at the bar and I bought a thing and they didn't have a brand. And I'm like, it's okay. You can totally do that. Like, yeah. I get it. You, you can you can buy a drink. And I was like, I always recommend buy the competitors so you can see how they're serving it and what they think about it. I was like, do your research. Yeah. Like, and that's okay. But if you don't provide some of those guidelines of what's acceptable and what's not, 
then how do they know? And then they're sweating. Like every time they hand something like, is that right? Is it not right? And I don't think that's fair to an employee either. It's like, you really have to make sure that they understand what the rules are. And like, if if they do fuck up, like, how do I handle it? Like, do I try to bury it or do I have an honest conversation? Like I I fucked up last night, a couple of too many drinks and I bought a round of something that had nothing to do with me. Do you want me to pay for it myself or like, how do we work it out? You know? And yeah. Manager. Yeah. We'll probably be like, all right, like, I understand, you know, we'll figure it out. (laughs) And And also, yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more with that. You know, it's, it's setting boundaries for yourself, taking that ownership and uh, yeah, you know, putting the pressure on yourself to do right by the company that you work for. Otherwise there is, no accountability. So it comes down to holding yourself accountable first. Yeah. And especially when you're working for yourself, you have to make sure you're accountable. You do start to treat money a lot differently when it when it's definitely your own. So I wanted to kind of, I know we're kind of getting on onto the hour, but I wanted to talk about, you know, there are definitely some things that are sometimes very difficult about being a brand ambassador, whether it's work-life balance or, you know, it's the drinking or, you know, things of that nature. And just you mentioned, you know, sometimes it was about the 24 hour day. So talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, it's, you know, especially working in base, I think every, almost every time zone, except for like the oceans, you know, it's, it's easy, you know, if I don't turn off my phone, which I, which I was not so good at in the past, you know, it, it can easily be 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now, when I'm, when I'm done for the day, I just switch my phone off because there's, there's nothing, there's nothing that's, you know, that's any kind of emergency that I need my phone on for. So yeah, that, that just really helps create a, a kind of division between work and not work. And yeah, I think I'm sure that's something that most people in, in these types of positions, Todd included, would have, would have wrestled with at some point. Yeah. I mean, Todd, do you have like a ritual or anything like your end of day or beginning of your day? Like, how do you maintain um, I get up, I get up, <laughs> it's, I get up at Monday through Friday. I get up at four in the morning every day and work out Wow! and go to jujitsu at six 30 in the morning. That way, you know, when my teammates are done trying to strangle me and fold me up into various uncomfortable positions, everything else feels relatively easy. And I, I don't drink during the week at all. I don't go out during the week anymore. And even there were times where I would try different sort of supplementation or fasting protocols when I was working or different nutrition plans when I was on the road a lot. And I also limited red eyes. I limited red eyes. I figured if it cost the company $30 more for me to book a flight at a more reasonable hour for health and wellness, well, then I just maybe don't take six bartenders to lunch that day to offset the costs. And from there, they're going to find that their employees are going to be a lot more productive when they're not taking a red eye that takes two days to recover. I mean, Jesse, you're global, you know, as well as anyone in Elaine, you've probably still got miles from all of your travels. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, I was going to say the, I was admired actually when I worked for Anheuser-Busch, they had a policy of, you know, to always, if it was anything over six hours, you, you definitely got to fly first class so you could get a good night's sleep. They would not, I mean, they were very, they were very stringent. Like we, like 
the amount of money we could spend on our hotel, how much money we got for a day for food. Like I was not used to that. Going from Diageo, where like I could like sit at Daniel Baloud and have like a nice dinner for the night. I went to that, like I had a budget for $70 for the entire day, no matter where I was, you know, sometimes 50 if I was in Mexico, you know, 90 if I was in London, you know, I was like, seriously, like how am I supposed to eat on this? Like, you know, but they definitely had a policy of making sure they wanted you to be well rested. So they really preferred you didn't take red eyes. Um, you know, they wanted you on day flights, they wanted you to sleep. So they would make sure like, you know, I used to have to go to Brazil a lot, Brazil and, and Argentina. And, uh, you know, that's a long flight. So we always took business class or Asia. We used to go to Singapore a lot. And like, you know, you flew comfortably so you could sleep. And I appreciated that because when I arrived, I wasn't jet lagged, you know, because I had a, you know, decent night's sleep. You know, you're always a little jet lagged. And to your point, I, I don't get up at four, Todd, but I, I do get up every day, even on weekends, actually, because I just find it easier somewhere between six and 6.30. And yeah. I get up at six six thirty. I meditate and I write my gratitude list for the day. It just helps it sets my mind. And at the end of the day, depending on day, but most days I used to end up with, and during COVID, really when the pandemic of it was heights, it was martinis at six with, with Philip. I've gotten healthier and a little bit healthier. <laughs> and now I go to the gym because gyms were open again. So I go to my body's former class at like 5.30, 6.30. So that's how I end my day. I, I don't like working out in the morning. I used to, and now I just, I, that's like my prime working hours between like 6.30 and like 11 is like, I shut myself off in the yeah. room and I get so much done. But I do think having those rituals do keep you, uh, you know, on a routine and also allows you to be more productive. Uh, Jesse, do you have any routine that you have or... Yeah, actually, I mean, same as you guys, exercise to me is key. And I'm, I'm, I'm not a morning person, so I'm the opposite of God. And I think to me, it's like at the, at the end of a long day, it's like my reward. So I get to go to the gym or wh whatever the, the constraints are, get out and skip rope or, or go for a run or whatever it is. So that's like my reward for a, for a long, good, good long day of work. Yeah, nice. no, I, I, I think it's really good. I mean, I, I'm still taught I'm not like I, I was, I'll go to the, I'm one of those rare. I go to the gym, I go home, I still have a martini. <laughs> but it's like my reward to myself for going to the gym. It's like, if I go to the gym, I have a martini. Uh, there, you uh, there, there you go. But that, that's just me. All right, so we're going to wrap it up. But any last-minute advice for anybody who wants to become a brand ambassador or maybe is one now that you're like, hey, learn from me. Like, if you had any words of advice that you'd like to end with, I'll start with I'll start with you. Oh sure. Well, besides reading my article, obviously, right? That's obviously, yeah. <laughs> but no, I just you know I'm I'm kind of for some reason it's just stuck in my head of this thing of just putting putting yourself out there. Of course, you know, like you guys said, showing up and just being a d decent person, you know, which is I think applies for any job really. I think, but just putting yourself out there and getting involved and knowledge is. I, I guess we didn't really talk so much about knowledge, but just. There's so many resources out there that are that are free now, and there's scholarships to the WSET and things like that. So knowledge yeah. is huge, and I think if you have that knowledge, and you're really kind of shouting about yourself, you know, putting your name out there, then people will notice, and you know, then that's when, you know, not only do you get more of that name recognition when you do apply for a job, but people may even say, "I love what this person is doing." And and just just kind of approach them to, to directly to be, to hire them. So, I think yeah, knowledge and putting putting one's name out there is is the kind of two main things I would I would put forth. 
No, I would definitely, and actually I will take a step back since it's my show, I can stay on as long as I like, but you guys probably have things to do. But I was going to say to the knowledge point, because Todd, you talked about this yesterday, and I think it is important for, for a minute to talk about, you know, we talked about Todd, you know, the fact that like you can work in on anything if you understand how just like spirits are made. And Jesse, to your point where like, there's so much stuff out there. And, you know, just taking courses of understanding how distillation works and fermentation work. And Todd, you said it really did help you even jump into wine, right? Yeah. Because um, you un- understood the the process. And I will say, if anybody wanted, like the WSET for me was definitely, uh, I had taken bar five, which how I started off my career and I knew nothing. <laughs> and Todd, and you and I talked about the fact that we were in like with legends in our class, like people. Yeah, like, you know, killers. Yeah, <laughs> like things like that. And I had people next to me, like Jim Meehan. I was like, all right. He's like smelling wow. things like blind. And he's like, so this is Bacardi. This is this brand. And I'm like, I don't even know what fucking spirit that is. But okay. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, it's so new. And I think once you do have those fundamentals, and, and now that I've taken the WSET level three, definitely open my I now, after 20 years, really understand distillation at a very geeky level. And fermentation and aging and all that stuff. And I highly recommend it. It does allow you to talk about anything. Because once you understand those, then it's like everything just has its nuances. Every spirit has those nuances. And it makes you a better brand ambassador. Would you agree? Absolutely agree 100%. I think, you know, to sort of tie that into what you asked Jesse about advice for future brand ambassadors. I mean, the, the core tenets really are study. Study your category, study your brands, be prepared for everything from a 45-minute presentation to a 30-minute elevator pitch to, hey, I've got five minutes next to a stranger at the airport. I'm ordering yeah. my brand. The conversation strikes. How do you how do you navigate all those different spaces? That the biggest thing is you're part of a team. There are a lot of great brand ambassadors out there, but there are also a lot of very hungry people who want to work hard in our industry and we're only as good as our last bit of work yep and as we're only as good as our value to the team to the program to what we're doing so you know be sure to remember that that while we need to be on that stage and under the lights or behind the bar and you're talking to people you're really nothing without the team around you. Otherwise, you're just somebody talking for a living. And I think that sort of deferral of the ego is really important because you're the face of a brand. And you're the face of a brand that's been around a lot longer than the three of us combined, let's say. <laughs> and there are a lot of people who help make that happen. So. Just get excited. Get excited about all of it. Get excited about the basic questions from new bartenders who could become future loyalists. Take the time to, you know, get to know everyone. It's there's there's so much that's great about the brand job that can lead you into so many other careers. Just go with it and have fun. Yeah, absolutely. I think networking is really key and getting to know people and, you know, you're I think one of the things is like getting to know people because sometimes you're in an event 
And there's so many great people in the room, right? But really spend time with the people that you're with. Like if you're having that conversation, just stay in that car. You'll see those other people again. It's fine. Yeah. You don't have to get to know. It's something I, I learned later on in life. It's like, yeah, like there might be somebody across the room that you've been dying to see. But if you're in that conversation with somebody and you're having, because A, we never know if we'll ever see that person again. Life is short and weird. And so it's like really appreciate those people and build those relationships and, and stay in, in touch with them. And that's what social media is really great for. And, you know, get to know them on a, on a personal level. It's amazing the stories you start to find out. It's one of the reasons why I do this is because I get to know people a lot better on a, on a much more intimate level. And yeah, and, and, and I always like to just I'll end it with just don't be a dick. Be a good person. <laughs> <laughs> keep building your personal brand, wrap it up, keep educating yourself. You know, there's always something new to learn. And guys, this has been really great. Um, I really enjoyed talking to you guys. This will go stay live. So if you want to share it anywhere you can, um, I'll put a clip of like some of our highlights onto LinkedIn because Todd, I know you're on there. Uh, so I saw, you, I saw you today post on that. And uh, that's it. So guys, really, I really appreciate this. This was really awesome. We learned a lot from the both of you. So thank you. Thanks for having us, Brian, and, and great to virtually meet you, Todd. Yeah, likewise, Jesse. It's a pleasure to meet you. Big fan of what you and your family have done for years. So thank you. And Elaine, great to catch up with you again over the past couple of days. Thank you for this opportunity. It's awesome. No, th thanks, guys. I look forward to seeing you both in person sometime soon. Soon. Miami's <laughs> yeah. open. Come through. <laughs> thanks, Diana, for tuning in. <laughs> yes. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning in. Again, this is your host, Elaine Duff. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Celebrating the Brand Ambassador. If you did, please do me a solid. Hit subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, leave an excellent review, and share on your social media. Also, follow me at Duff on the Rocks to tune in to the live version of these shows every other week on Facebook and say hi or get a question answered by one of our guests. Lastly, if you want to learn more about my online Brand Ambassador Academy or to sign up for one-on-one -on -one coaching, head to my website, DuffOnTheRocks.com or BeverageBA.com. Until next time, this girl is out and an ice cold martini is calling my name. Cheers, everyone. <laughs>